I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast. I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month we're talking about David Fincher's The Killer, streaming on Netflix. And here we go. Like its meticulous assassin in a bucket hat, The Killer knows all the rules but appears unassuming. Yet for a film so wedded to the conventions of a subgenre, in this case the Hitman movie, why does The Killer feel different? For starters, The Killer is David Fincher's follow-up to Mank, his highly personal 2020 tribute to the Hollywood screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, who wrote Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Mank, which was the subject of our first podcast episode, saw Fincher using the script by his father, and it was pitched as Netflix play for Oscar glory. In comparison to Mank and Fincher's other previous prestige dramas, such as 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button or 2010's The Social Network, the killer seems modest and unambitious. In many respects, The Killer, being a strict genre piece based on a French graphic novel, sees Fincher changing directions from his last work, and going back in a way towards the crime thrillers that have characterized much of his career, such as 1995-7, 2011's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and 2014's Gone Girl. Over the past decade and a half, Fincher has spent much time as an executive producer for various Netflix TV series, such as House of Cards and Mindhunter, even directing some episodes and clearly influencing the shadowy look of these series. But I'm still left feeling like The Killer is different than most new releases I've watched in recent years. Perhaps the difference I'm trying to get at is less about the film's variations on genre conventions, and more about how the movie feels like a throwback to the filmmaking of two decades ago. Maybe I'm overstating the case, but watching this lean entry from a top-tier director made me think of the early 2000s, when, it seems, there was less pressure for a big director to chase either awards prestige or mega box office returns with each new release. Maybe it's also a matter of generational status. Two decades ago, David Fincher was still climbing the ladder, even though he had one big success, Seven, and a cult hit, Fight Club, under his belt. In the early 2000s, Nolan was still making small crime thrillers, after all. Maybe I'm just happy to see a director of the caliber of Fincher make this kind of unassuming genre piece in 2023. Today, it often seems we're not okay with an auteur delivering a good but not great film. Think about the discourse each time Spielberg or Scorsese or Tarantino makes a new movie. Does every new work have to reshape the canon? Fincher's The Killer seems only ambitious as an attempt to refine key elements of the Hitman movie. I think it delivers in that sense, even if I found the movie too deliberate and unsurprising in its narrative, especially after the first act. Fincher is also clearly a filmmaker of peak ability. Each shot is meticulous. The way planes take off in the background from an airport, or the moss hangs from a big tree in Florida, it all looks so carefully constructed. Fincher's perfectionism definitely comes through in The Killer, which perhaps points to the other layer more than a couple critics have noted. Perhaps this unassuming Hitman movie is actually a movie by one of our consummate creators about the creative process. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. I find music a useful distraction, a focused tool, keeps the inner voice from wandering. Guys, there's a lot to explore here, and I won't cover it all in this intro. In particular, I do want to dig into Michael Fassbender's excellent performance. Fassbender brings such uh, restrained intensity to the role. But as usual, let's start with your first impressions. Did you like the movie, and did you like it as a David Fincher movie? Anders, do you want to start things off? Sure. I I liked it a fair bit. I think it it really does fit into a lot of Fincher's... uh, 
sort of auteur tendencies, as, as you noted in your keynote. I think his, his interest in process, right, it, it really comes through in this mm-hmm. film, yeah. giving it that kind of sense. And also you mentioned, like, Fincher, in one sense, yeah, he's sort of become this prestige director. But, you know, I think back when he was willing to do a, a sort of more modest genre piece like uh, 2002's uh, Panic Room. Right. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he's, he's, ne- it's not something that is, is completely foreign to him in that way, but it's been a long time. Right. Um, I definitely like this a lot better than Mank. <laughs> um, I, and I, it was great to see Michael Fassbender back on the big screen as after taking, uh, you know, uh, he hasn't really done much in the last few years, taking time off to pursue other things. But yeah, no, I liked The Killer. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it, it redefines or, or sharpens the, uh, the hitman narrative so much rather than I think, I don't know. I don't know if I got the impression that the film ultimately is interesting in that it's, it's about this process, but what I kind of dug was that ultimately the killer is, he kind of sucks at his job. <laughs> it's a film about somebody whose process thinks they have it all mapped out, thinks they know everything that's going to happen. And yet uh, they keep messing up, <laughs> so to speak. So, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess so. Like when I when I sat let's, down to watch, let's, let's yeah, I, I just want to explain later, my experience. But, um, yeah, my my experience of watching the film was one of about twenty minutes into the film, I was like, you know, I'm not sure. I, I so I guess my my take was a little bit different than yours, where you say you you kind of it kind of lost you in the last, second half of the film or the later bits. For me, after the first twenty minutes or so, I, you know, it was kind of neat. You know, this idea of patience and and his sort of distanced voiceover. You know, kind of reminded me of like you know. It's like I'm Jack's, you know, spleen fight, yeah, club, fight club narration. Fight club narration. Yeah. I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. But I was like, do we really need another uh, you know, film about a that about a cool uh controlled hitman and how he's, you know, got everything like so precisely. And then the moment when everything goes wrong. And I was like, Okay, yeah. now this is gonna be interesting. And now we got something to to make it a little bit different and take a different take on it. So 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 overall, I, I one, one, my sensing like a mod, a modest yeah overall. like a modest. I don't I don't think it's not def- I don't think it's among Fincher's best. I don't think it's a a failure by any uh, mark. But and and like you say, you know, frankly, it I enjoyed it a fair bit just because Fincher's such a a, a pleasurable director to watch for me because he he's again so in control of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't really, it didn't feel like anything in the movie, you know, it didn't overstay its welcome. It wasn't excessively yeah, long. Yeah, it's crisp. Um, and, and yeah, the crispness of both the cinematography and the, the sort of plot and, and the narrowness of it, uh, I didn't mind at all. So yeah, no, I, it was enjoyable. I give it a thumbs up. Aaron? Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Um, I went to see it in the theaters okay, because so it was high, highly chef. favorable. Yeah. Partially because I think Fincher is best when he's working in genre mode. I actually think that the genre limitations allow the the kind of obsessiveness of his whole approach, whether it's thematic or stylistic, to really show. And um, you mentioned even the TV episodes that he directed in your in your keynote. So, yep. like House of Cards, famously, he did the pilot, and then yep. Mindhunter, he did several episodes of Mindhunter. And yep. I think Mindhunter yep. is like basically one of the best things he's done. And it yeah, great. fits great with show. my idea that of all of his best movies, aside from, um, like, I think his best movie is The Social Network. But okay. that's the outlier, but it actually fits in the mode of the other yeah, <laughs> films absolutely. a lot. But I think other than that, all of his best movies, I think, are the ones where he almost takes, like, quote unquote, trash material and makes it great. So you get Seven, you have um, Zodiac, Girl to Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl, right? And... All those movies are not... Fight Club? Is Fight Club not on that list? Well, Fight Club... Literary adaptation. Fight Club is kind of like Social Network in that it lives in that... um, Okay, yeah. It's that critical... It's like self-critical of its own process. And this movie does have a lot with Fight Club, with specifically the narration and the Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. cynical approach to the whole thing and how the movie... Like, we can get into this in a bit, but how the movie itself is a... Um, commentary on like the transactional nature of modern world, how the fact that like nobody has personas, nobody has Mm -hmm. this, that, but I just think as a movie, like this is clearly Fincher's wheelhouse in terms of pacing style, the way, the type of performances that he wants to get out of actors really fits genre. Well, Um, 
there's clear like neo-noir aspects to it. The narration is the most obvious of it, but also the whole like something goes wrong and then you kind of essentially dig into the character's history by the cleaning up the, the mess, right? And that's yeah. a classic thing in noir is like something goes wrong and then, okay, we're going to take a step back and we're going to go through what got this character to this spot, right? Um, but basically just like Mank is one of those movies that was handsomely made and like very interesting in aspects but kind of doesn't really all work as a movie despite having like individual great moments and yeah. this movie was more of like okay please fincher just stick to this because like this is just so much better and i i want to say before we get into all the specifics digging in here um yeah i liked something you said in in your keynote which is like why do we expect our great auteurs to only produce great movies why can't they just make like good movies and we'd be happy about it? Yeah. And I was thinking about this because I saw Killers of the Flower Moon yesterday and every single review I've read of it is essentially, wow, Scorsese makes another masterpiece. And, I, I, and I'm, to be fair, crit, you know, guilty of this too, like with Scorsese or with Nolan or with Spielberg, where it's like, wow, they just keep knocking it out with like amazing movies. But at the end of the day, if every movie the person has made over the past 15 years is like this is the towering achievement of their career it's like yeah. it, they can't all be <laughs> yeah and you know i'm not here to they talk can't about all reshape and moon. redefine yeah and interestingly though though the interesting thing i would say is that fincher compared with those other three that you mentioned scorsese spielberg and nolan i think that he fits more into the traditional auteur as a director notion from like the sort of Andrew Saris notes on tour uh, film on tour, because he often doesn't write his own material when he did with Mank, It wasn't, I thought it was actually not as good. He often does. Well, adapt. He didn't, he didn't write Mank. Didn't his dad write Mank? Yeah, but he, yeah, it came on. Right. Like, it's, like it's a personal, uh, a personal project. Yeah. Yeah. Very personal. Way, whereas a lot of the other films, uh, you have different screenwriters, um, and he brings his own personal touch to it through that. And as you noted, right, like his elevation of so-called trash material, right? Like that to me f- puts Fincher much more in like a, a Howard Hawks yeah. or a uh, someone like of that mode, right? Um, not whereas Spielberg, Nolan and Scorsese are much uh, at this point, they, you know, have, have a different relationship to a lot of the material that they adapt and stuff like that. So that's what makes also... I think, I guess you want to get meta about the, the killer, you know, Fincher, he takes on a job. He's a professional and he does it well. And he lines up all the pieces, you know, and things like that is, was Mank the bot shit? I don't know. But the, uh, you know, so I, I I think there's something to that. And that, yeah, I like that about Fincher, like that even his so-called lesser films i think sometimes when he he overreaches and he gets these big sort of oscar bait films like benjamin button or mank is where to me i'm like i kind of like lose it right and i think the danger for some other people is that they want to like elevate i've I've heard people say things like oh panic room is his best film or like you know i think the game i think the game (laughs) is very good no and yeah i think the game is very good i don't think it's his best right but we can appreciate those films for what he does with them yeah and like i don't want to derail the whole conversation here and just talk over like auteurism in this modern moment but it's partially a like a side effect of the polarization of how people think right everything is either the best or the worst it's nothing exists in the middle and i think certain artists might fall into that a bit too or play to it in even just the way that things are promoted like again i don't really want to talk about killers of the flower moon here you guys i know you guys haven't seen it but like that movie, even just the way it's projected is like, it's a late epic masterpiece and redefinition of the American like Western by Scorsese. And the whole, like everything, every interview, every review, it has this kind of like, oh, it's the grandmaster making his like final statement yeah. kind of thing, even though it's not going to be his last movie, right? Like but unless he in, tragically and dies. And they've said that about every one of his movies for like years. Exactly. But also like, but like Scorsese and Spielberg are older, right? Fincher's not as old as them. So they are yeah. more in their late career phase for sure. of their like, I've, I don't have anything to prove anymore. So I'm just going to make the things that are close to me. Like, so you take Scorsese and it's like silence and the Irishman and now killers of the fire moon are all clearly like just projects. He's really passionate about. That's not, it's the, the commercial or the prestige stuff is like grafted onto it. <laughs> yes. With their, with their length alone, he does not have to be concerned with uh, commercial appeal. Yeah. But the thing that I love about 
something like the killer and about Fitcher's whole approach here seems to be like not taking the notion of a movie preciously. It's like he's, he understands the entertainment aspect to it. It's why he's also like, Oh, I like that. It's on Netflix. Like it's cool because yeah. people can watch it. And like, I get my quality control compared to he's like, people complain about Netflix, but compared to the other studios I've worked with, I've had a better experience with Netflix. So like, I'm not going to shit on them. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like mo- we're talking about auteurism and we're talking about, you know, like, can you put out these sort of, it's almost like a, like a, a modest auteur product in the sense that like, it's not, yeah, you're, it, it's not going for prestige. It's not going, and it's not being cultivated by um, critics and, um, and other people as sort of like a, a prestige work that's going to tell us so much about, about the, the filmmaker. It might have been the um, top movie on Letterboxd over the weekend, but it's not like a f- movie that seems to be made entirely for the Letterboxd contingent to like create yes, some kind of yes. narrative about it. <laughs> it's not. I think it's one that actually might benefit uh, from people discovering it over the holidays over the next couple months when they want something uh, new to watch in that it isn't doesn't seem crafted around the discourse per se. Yeah. Uh, the, and, and, and then generating those kind of things, uh, you know, so I think that's a good thing. To like start digging in on some of the themes here, like, do you think that the film seeming generic modesty, which I actually think is often like a, Anton, do you have something you want to, sorry, well, am, just, I, am just I On that, on that <laughs> note, I'm just sort of thinking that like, maybe part of the difference is also that it, this isn't, so much of um, what we would think of as sort of like the auteur is like turned into kind of like the brand. And I think like Nolan is a great example of this where it's like, like, you know, I, I think it's undisputable that like Nolan's like a, an auteur in the way he approaches his films, but his, his stamp on the film is just as important for like the selling point, the marketing, all that sort of side of the film. Whereas this movie, this shows up on Netflix. I'm not sure half the people who watch this, know that this is like a David Fincher movie. No, I, they, I don't think people do. I think some people, I, I've talked to a couple people, I'm like, oh yeah, this is made by the guy who made like, you know, Girls the Dragon Tattoo and Fight Club. And I don't think that that's not something that they're selling it on per se. But, but what's interesting then is that at the same time, like if you've seen enough Fincher movies, and I'm, I'm sure many of you listening to this have, as soon as you start to see how he lights a, a darkened room and that like, that yellow glow in the corners and stuff. You're like, this, this is David Fincher. The classic David Fincher shooting the movie through a lens, a piss colored lens. <laughs> no, it's, it's just, it's not like, color balancing. It's just not color balancing the tungsten. Yeah, yeah. But, but no one like, you know, no one has um, a person in a darkened room looking into a lit room across, across the street that looks that way. Like this is on that on that sense, the actual product is stamped by Fincher, even if like it's not marketing heavy, right? Like that, but that's sort of a tangent. And anyway, no, I mean that that kind of leads into it though, which is that I think Fincher, both the film as like what it's interested in, but also the film as like a product as a work, has a kind of a cynicism to it about yeah. the entire project that it floats kind of above the usual stuff that I think we get bogged down in with stories these days. And so I know for a fact that this cynicism turns certain people off from this movie, because this is a movie that like, it's kind of built as a revenge thriller. It's a, you know, the opening 30 minutes or so makes you think that it's this kind of looking, you know, we're going to take you behind the scenes of like what an actual assassin who's like very meticulous, like what would they go about? What would they do? What is the life of a hitman actually entail? And it's very boring, but it's very like patterned and very like, you know, he's got his little fit uh, Apple watch, smartwatch or whatever that keeps him like, you know, his blood pressure and the time and he's checking in every 30 minutes and like waking up and napping and eating a bit of food and then like doing his routines and stuff. So you have this idea that there's like some, some uh, kind of prurient, drive to it but it's not it's actually a movie about a guy yeah as anders kind of has alluded about a guy who like kind of sucks at his job but also a guy who is seemingly out for revenge here right because he, the job gets botched and then they his 
his um, the person who hires him out um, hires subcontractors to clean up his mess, which means kill him and all the people associated with him as like an insurance clause. Yeah. yeah. And then he fights his way back. But and so you, we find like out, we go to the Dominican and then like his girlfriend who lives there on his compound has been like brutally hurt. And then that like, you know, leads him to find the two people that that did that. But he's not actually doing it to because he's like emotionally invested in that. It's that he's so disconnected from normal human reality through his routines that he's now had that upset and he has to reestablish the like disconnection, you know, like his, his upset at seeing his home is partially the fact uh, his home, like all the cigarettes, right? He comes to the fence of the gate. He's going to be going into his compound in Dominican. And does he notice that somebody has been here? Yeah. He notices somebody has been there by all the cigarettes, but it's, it's more of like somebody has punctured, my reality that I've created. That's the issue here. It's not that my girlfriend has been possibly killed. It's like, that's a little bit of part of that, but it's the whole here is the idea of he's created his process and his process has been spoiled, which is proven by the, you know, let's jump forward a bit by the end of the film, right? He doesn't get revenge on the guy who actually put it all in action. He doesn't care because now he realizes that it's been reestablished his power over the situation his control has been reestablished yes. by the fact that he can hang this over the head. So he has no reason because he has no actual emotional investment in the revenge. He just wants to so get the, back to the equilibrium. <laughs> okay. Well, what is it exactly I can do for you? I came to show you how easily one might get to you, Mr. Claiborne. And to ask, do you and I have a problem? Do we what, a problem? No, of course not. So the motivation is, you said the word, is control. So it's the reestablishment of control over the over his entire situation, his entire life. But that's, that's why he like has the, this profession. He has mass, He has control over everything, literally life and death. That's like the whole thing with this character. Yeah. There's no personality. He has a million passports with hilarious names. And like he doesn't – he lives in like rental cars and rental trucks and airports and like showers in the airport lounges and like – this guy doesn't actually have a life, but he doesn't want one. And I think Fincher, weirdly enough, is like kind of a director who doesn't want to be. He's played the game enough, but I don't think he wants to be a guy who's like chasing prestige or the discourse or the like the applause of the online crowd. I think he's just like interested in his stuff. And it goes almost back to his music video days when he had a bit of that punk attitude of like, I don't care about your like stuff. I just do what I want. <laughs> So it makes the whole movie um, like a, this kind of interesting, self-reflexive statement. Yeah. And so you can obviously read Fazbender's character as kind of an analog for Fincher himself. Also, be, And then it's like, then you have to get into the whole, is Fincher making fun of himself? Because if his on-screen analog is not as meticulous as he actually thinks he is, what does that say about the person he's reflecting, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it, it's a really interesting way to read the film. Is it... I don't know, like, did it occur to you guys while watching the film? Like, for me, I, I watched the movie, and then afterwards I was thinking about it, and then it sort of, like, dawned on me that we, you know, I was like, oh, like, you know, I basically was writing down, like, notes, and I was, you know, like, perfectionism, and then it's just like, oh, yes. And what is what is Fincher known as? A perfectionist, you know, like, formal for perfectionist. But, did, but I, for you I guys, were you important. thinking about this while watching the movie? Well, I, I just thought it was important. I think it's important so to it, it, undercut okay, that so here, at numerous points, so right? What, what are the points guy, where this you... This is a guy who like literally listens to the Smiths nonstop in order to calm himself down. Like, mopey, uh, like... <laughs> you know, in indie pop rock from like the eighties to like And only the Smiths. And only the Smiths. That's all we get through the entire film. He's just listening to the Smiths and the and the lyrics of the Smiths that are self pitying and uh, you know, really like morose and like So right wait right away you would say that the his music choice undercuts the narration. Absolutely. We're dealing with sort of ironic narration in that sense. Yeah. I think so, hugely. Okay, what what are some of the other because I guess after watching the movie, I wasn't entirely like, obviously there's the the core mistake that Aaron talks about that sets everything off. And I, I entirely read this film as a, 
someone who needs to reestablish control over the situation. And the, and I think the reason he doesn't have to kill the client who initiated everything is because by that point, he's actually reestablished control and he's satisfied that that has been established. And so it's not about the kill and the revenge on that level. Because again, his earlier comment, like he, he doesn't believe in justice. He's not interested in justice. It's what's but, in it for me. What, yes. What in it, yeah, yeah, what's in it for me? And so then he's also, um, yeah, I mean, he's, um, what's the word? He's he's solipsistic too, right? Yeah. Although there's a weird fact that I, I, I'd never expected that this character would, um, I guess, does he care? But, um, you know, that he has this girlfriend um, that precipitates some sort of action on him. Is it emotion or anything? But, okay, well, let's pick that up later. Anders, um, what are the other moments that puncture well, that like even when him he being being the professional perfectionist. When, when he goes to get the like the you know the guys in Florida, he's not like a superhero. He's not like yes, just, okay. So you're not like, getting this like cool like just walk in and like defeat everybody. You're like oh, he's like that other guy's like way tougher than him. Like you're not yeah. just because you're just because you're so cool and collected and like want to be in control. I mean, the other guy uh, outweighs you probably by you know like 100 pounds 100 like, pounds maybe so more. you know i think fastbender plays down his, his physicality i think there's something about fastbender's performance here that i think is interesting um so like i i, I want to mention about talk maybe we can talk a little bit about fastbender's performance here well right there you have an interesting contrast of he's the yoga guy versus the uh the lip, the the like the the weight bros, you know, like yeah, exactly. Who are like pumping iron in their Florida, yeah, place with the pit bulls. I was like, just please don't hurt them. Just don't hurt the pit bull. <laughs> I love that the pit bull. I do love when the pit bull goes right through the window. The pit bull oh, yeah. is like, and that's so. That, actually, that's the most scary seat part. I know, and it's like, like holy crap, get that's, out. that dog. No, but also out. like he tries to right. He tries to drug the pit bull. He kind of fails at it. He like his whole process is it's. It seems to be like relying on luck a bit of it, and then just elements of surprise, right? Does, <laughs> so like, does the pitbull? Doesn't he need to? So when I was watching, I was like, "Why doesn't he just give the pitbull all of the meat and just like kill it?" But I thought that was because he like tosses the Molotov cocktail, and he's gonna want it ostensibly to kind of be like a like a fire, an accident. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I kind of thought that he was trying to make it look like an accident. Yeah. So if he if he just shoots the pit bull like that's it'll gonna, be evidence, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that Fassbender also like has not really made many movies like in six years. Like he made, I yeah, guess he, had, he I guess he was in the X Men movie in 2019, but that was literally like his last movie. He has two this year. Um, and before that, I think he had some right. Stuff. Didn't he have like a well, he he like got a married, child, and yeah. And then he was apparently driving race cars. <laughs> yeah, he did the um, Le Mans oh, race. Yeah. So, oh, really. This is yeah, his oh, wow. like return to uh, acting, really, in a lot of ways too. Um, with you know, which I think is is uh, notable. But uh, the the film that it reminded me of, like a little bit, also was uh, Soderbergh's Haywire. Another yes, very, I, like, I actually did think about that yeah. film with Michael Fassbender in a supporting role there. But like the scene but that, when again, they a fight very and he gets his <laughs> narratively a very straightforward. Mm -hmm. We're gonna reverse engineer like the hit and go back and sort of like deal with the, the, the pieces. Mm -hmm. But Aaron, you, so you also feel like, do you agree with Anders that you like, you see a lot of they he doesn't live up to his own narration. Oh, for sure. But that's why I, he's a, he's slightly oblivious to it, which is why I think the key line in the movie and the one that cued me into some of the um, critical lens that the film takes on itself, it's self reflexivity is this line. It's the line when he's running down the stairs Like when after he screws up, he's just like, "Oh, this is new." Like <laughs> he's surprised by the fact that he screwed up, which means that he actually doesn't take that into account in his process. So he doesn't actually like. It's just funny because he's so meticulous in setting up the hit, and we spend a good amount of time with him in that we work right. Yeah, <laughs> where he's setting it up. He's 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 watching. He's got a sniper rifle. He's folding it up. He's going down getting food. He comes back up. He's sleeping. He wakes up and he's got the like weird work table that he levels perfectly for the sniper yeah. rifle. And he's but he, then he's stupid enough 
to be like, I'm going to shoot when she's standing kind of in front of him. Yeah, I know. He, he could have, have, so shot he could have taken the shot earlier. <laughs> but he doesn't because he's actually like... He wants he, it to be perfect. He wants it to be perfect, but he also thinks it's like in such... Like he could have shot him through the wall. It's like, it's the type of rifle that he could shoot through like a banister. It's fine. He's going to still hit the guy. But he has this... I almost It's like he's too enamored of what the product is before it's actually been made such that he thinks that his perfectionism will carry him to the end, which again, I don't want to like, I don't think the um, idea of like the killer as Fincher is the main way to read this movie. I just think it's an yeah. interesting texture that, but there are that nice parallels. There. Yes. And I think that there's the material, you know, I guess it's based on a French graphic novel. I can see how it lends itself to that, but I do think that Fincher is also like, I can imagine reading the graphic novel and not getting the same kind of critical meta aspects of it. I do think Fincher often put, has this playful sort of undercutting of things that could be read uh, more directly. Like I always think of that scene in like Fight Club when I'm, you know, like teaching like critical media and the way you can read Fincher sets things up so you can read it against against the grain, right? You don't have to like take it straight. And then, you know, Tyler Durden and the narrator get on the bus and they're like, they look at the Calvin Klein ad and they're like, is that what a man looks like? You know, sort of critical of this mm-hmm. sort of modern metrosexual masculinity of the late 90s. And then immediately in the next scene, you get Brad Pitt shirtless cut in his like, in your oh, like, he's wearing a mesh look, shirt. Yeah, dude. But also, dude, you look just like someone out of one of those ads. Like, so like he's always doing this kind of thing that isn't, necessarily like i know i know the novel fight club is is quite meta in a lot of ways too but it but that is like unique in the visual style and stuff that future puts in he's you don't always have to get it you can read it kind of straight you can still appreciate it but like there's something there to uh sort of criticize and and just get us to pause and say like isn't it funny how we like to watch these movies about like hitmen who are so like good at their jobs it's like but actually like you know, a lot of the people who get involved in this stuff, like the client, they like are just kind of like silly people. You know, I was very new to this kind of thing. When's the last time you watched a movie that had narration like this, plus narration that you can read potentially against the grain at times? I I was actually trying to think about that, and I was like, I actually hadn't seen that in a movie. I don't think I've I've actually seen or heard that in a movie in a while. And so on that level, it's like, it, I kind of appreciate that. I think the like your comment about um, when's the last time you heard narration like this? Like, obviously the thing, because it's Fincher, I thought of Fight Club and Fight Club is useful there because the narrator, you know, that's literally his character, the narrator, um, you know, who is Tyler Durden, same person. Well, this movie is another of those. <laughs> yeah, like, the killer. Like, the killer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so he, he's the narrator and he is essentially like he's much more pathetic than the killer is right but both characters are almost trying to convince you of their impressiveness through the narration mm. right yeah like how the narrator has this perfect apartment it's a, perfect it's a bit of the- it's a bit of pathetic it's a bit pathetic and the killer the thing that cues into why um we shouldn't be so impressed with his actual process right he repeats things constantly and he repeats things not because it's like it's important and there's the code i live by it's more of like i have to remind myself of this is the way to do it it's like a guy who's been listening to it like an audio podcast of like how to be a good killer and it's like okay i do this and then i do that and then i do that and i don't do this like it's, it's like he's reciting no, his I'm mantra no, yeah. <laughs> right and guys who recite their mantra are people who need to remind themselves to do something they don't do, right? Like, naturally. He's not I mean, that person. Like, I'm sorry, the killer ain't Jeff Costello from Le Samurai. <laughs> no, exactly. But even even Le Samurai, he, like, screws up, too, because yeah, he yeah. cares. Because he cares. That's the I thing, mean, Because right? he cares, not because he's atta- detached. Yeah, he's so like, good at being detached. <laughs> the killer is more like the narrator before his whole transformation. Like, in like I think he, he, he is all surfaces. He is all, like... He he cares about how he looks. He cares about how the music he listens to and how he does this thing. And he, but he wants you to think he doesn't care, right? He models himself after the, the German tourist because nobody cares about that. But he's he kind of looks like some like kind of like you know contemporary like uh, you know hipster dude. Like so, it's like 
how do you read that? I mean, he's trying to, con- who's he trying to convince here? He's trying to convince himself. Well, that's the, and that's the thing why the narration. So a lot of people don't like narration, right? But narration is so key to noir. If it's done and, well. It's, yeah, for sure. And noir. So the narration is key because it's a plea to us, right? It's the character directly attempting to convince us of something like in that in some way or the other, the, the character is aware that there's somebody witnessing this story and is like, actively putting on a show so you get that like metatextual element just by the nature of the narration but then you look at back at like 1940s noirs and so this is one of those things of like this movie is a neo-noir technically because of the nature of what it is but it actually plays more like a noir than like a like a classic noir than say a la samurai or some or a chinatown or some of those other neo-noirs and the reason is that because it's ultimately one of those like the the process of the character, the narration of the character, and the results of the, his actions reveal to you who this person is, which is kind of the key of all those initial noirs. They're not like revisionists. They're simply like in a, a psychological and sociological yeah. reveal of America, right? And so you like you listen to – I keep going back to it because I listened uh, – I watched it earlier this year. But like you take Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street. Edward G. Robinson's character, he is completely self-delusional and he's telling himself a story that the things that we are seeing on screen prove differently. And this character might be more meticulous about it. He might be more specific in his routines, more minimalistic in his lifestyle. But ultimately, by us hearing what he tells us about himself and then watching what he actually does proves essentially his own faults (laughs) in the process. So my only thought about that would be what what do we make of then the final line of the movie where he says he's not among the few, but he's actually among the many. And so in that sense, is this a moment of like realization that he's not among the exceptional or like those controlling things, right? Like the movie makes a moment of it by you slowing not things a down. You are not beautiful snowflake. You are not. <laughs> I keep going well, back er- to Early, like right earlier in the film, where he makes a point that like you know history is controlled by the few, um, controlling the many, and at the end of the movie, he's like, "But I, you know, I forget the exact phrasing of it." Maybe you're just like me, one of the many. You know, and so he associates with the many. But so is this a sense of is that, that a realization? Or is it? A, is, well, that's is my it question. A, is, it is it a moment of realization that he realizes that he's not actually? one of the people in control right like he's not running the cards on the table um in this in the you know the game of life or or like you know i'm just based on what you said Aaron. i'm just sort of curious how as a critique of the modern world i mean like is it a realization that you can have everything perfectly lined up you can do everything right but ultimately in the day if you're the not if you're the one getting a paycheck rather than writing the paycheck, you aren't one of the few. You are one of the many. I mean, yeah. Is it that, or is it? But like, is it a, is it a, um, a realization, or is it a admission or confession? Like, is it just he's finally being honest with us for the first time in the movie? Because again, we have seen him not kill the client. Therefore, we know what he's actually all about now. And he has to admit that the whole thing is just his means of having control in a world where he is not one of the few who actually has control, right? Yeah. Um, So it might be one of those cases of, because, you know, like, again, noirs, um, usually the lead of a noir is kind of screwed over by the end. Like, that tends to be the thing. It's not in every case, but tends to be the thing. They're undone by their own flaws, their psychological uh, traumas and you know the the femme fatale. There's there's not really a femme fatale here. Um, T- Tilda Swin is kind of the closest thing you get, but it's not really. It's a different thing. But um, uh, I do want to talk about her character. Yeah, yeah, we should, well, we should switch now into over the other stuff. But it's so Andrews, like you you brought up the idea of um, the emptiness of modern things and so forth. I like I think that's kind of the key thing here in this movie. That if we're talking about this movie's um, critical lens. It's, criti- it's self-critical about the character, but I think it's a hyper-critical about like this current disembodied world that we all live in. And I think the pandemic has made more 
um, heightened. And the fact that this is delivered on streaming somehow actually makes it all more implicitly yeah, <laughs> like, register. Back to what we said that he's like literally in a WeWork, right? Like a failed, yeah. like sort of like attempt yeah. to. Okay. Yeah. He he's in a WeWork to do the murder. He orders from Amazon to break into a guy's thing. He feeds himself at McDonald's. He rents storage space. He pretends to be like garbage workers, which that's a pretty great scene, I think, where he yeah. like paint. He, I love this, the little the touch of him painting. He's thing. using a marker to put the recycling thing on and then the little I, badge. I actually did like that scene and the whole bit with like, what, it wasn't even the guy who was the admiral and talked about <laughs> Yeah. And he's, he's, Anders, he's also. Uh, kills him with nine inch nails as he points out in his narration while Atticus yeah. Ross and Trent Reznor are the Trent score. <laughs> um, but like Anton, what do you think about this? Like the movie, this idea that everything is transactional and the movie, there's no character names. Every single interaction and or encounter he has with somebody else is transactional. Even with his girlfriend, yeah. it's like, I put you out in this house so that you are the, the pretty nice woman I can come home to on well, my break. Okay. So I would say that there's, I, I thought the the little line about McDonald's was a great line where he's talking about, you know, it's uh, the cheap, you know, I can pay a, a hero to get 10 grams of protein. Like it was just, it's so mechanical and transactional and that I thought that was a brilliant way to assess because, the value guy, of McDonald's. It's also the guy, he does yoga. Doesn't he take the bun off? He's eating keto. He's like, well, he bought, he, I think he takes the bottom bun off. Okay. Yeah, but I, I, I just noticed that he bun. was just eating like the meat, I think, yeah. like, or the egg. He took off like the the muffin on the McMuffin or whatever. But, well, I mean, yeah, but basically he's still he's still assessing right your the nutritional value of the yeah. protein versus the cost. But he in the end he agrees upon that McDonald's is a good vehicle to deliver that right. Yeah, um, and then as you mentioned, um, the Amazon etc. Um, and, and we you know it go the movie goes out of its way to show how. He's Airports, rental cars, this equinox supply chain. <laughs> yeah. I also think that there's a moment where he's coming down the stairs, or is he going up? Um, and there's a camera that sees him. It's early on when he's in the WeWork, going mm-hmm. up into the building, and he mentions. So he's going off on this list of like what you have to do to be a great, you know, to be a great hitman, to be a great assassin. And he's like, "Don't be seen." And he's like, "Well, nowadays you can't really do that, so you just got to minimize." Like, and you gotta just be not noticeable. Exactly, be forgettable. Yeah. yeah. But like, I also thought that that was a weird. It's one of those like weird. The way the lines constructed, it's sort of interesting because it's like it almost assumes that parts of the material that he's telling us is like out of date and actually no longer applies. Because like, why did you say this this thing which actually no longer applies? Like he tells us, like just don't be, you know, don't be seen. Well, you know, and then he, and then he <laughs> modifies it. because he's getting it, his it, lessons from like old movies and things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, so that sense that I do see this movie as kind of like um, a conscious, on some level, kind of it's it's not like a it's not a drastic genre revision in any sense, but I do think that the movie's interested in trying to like it's it's super adhering to certain conventions and then trying to kind of like how would I fit them into perhaps like 2023 and being very specific and conscious about that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, I think it's actually like a movie, despite what, how we started this conversation, that it's a movie that's not really about um, the discourse. So it actually represents this moment in time very well and in a better way than I think a lot of movies that really seem to chase it um, in very obvious senses, because I think it's a movie that reflects it within its very like, structure and again the word that we keep coming back yeah. to process yeah in as opposed to just its message yeah um and i think fazbender's whole performance is very that too because it like there's a malleability to the way he plays the character but it's reserved right he reminds us of all the people that we cross on our daily lives in cities the fact that he's always got the earbuds in or he's always like half paying attention to something else or in his own head he never really like engages the person in front of them and the only time he finally actually engages somebody is like over the dinner with or the end of the dinner with Tilda Swinton's assassin that he's yeah with the whiskey and it's like it's maybe because of a bit of kinship there but it's also like he ultimately realizes if he doesn't have it it's like it might cause a scene so he has to like blend into that moment 
for a tiny bit, even though he's the, yeah. the, the, the visual of him sitting there with his gloves on. <laughs> also, that whole scene with the, I'm just imagining what the wait staff at that restaurant are thinking is going on. Like it's so bizarre. So like, what did you guys think about Fazbender's performance? And then like the other people that pop up in yeah. this movie? I think he's good. I like well, him a lot. I think it's really good. Yeah. I think like, I think Fassbender gives a really good performance. I think it's one of those, the, uh, the character as written and the actor have a great like merging. And so like, you know, it's the kind of performance where you, you have to give a lot of credit, I think to the casting. Like I I think it was very smart that they picked fast bender. And then I was very pleased with him in the role. He does have a certain, I'm trying to think of other people who could be this character. And there's something about his, like his physicality, like, you know, um, combined with like, he exudes sort of an, well, I mean, partly like being Magneto and other things, like he exudes sort of an intelligence and a control of a situation, a physicality that's like, he has a lot of ability, but he's not like a big guy. He's sort of lethe and powerful, but, but, but slimmer. And then also um, he just can like, he can look, he's one of those actors who can look and convey a lot of intensity without with minimal uh, dialogue. So I just thought he was, he was well cast. I was happy to see him back. I thought overall in terms of the supporting performances, I kind of thought that the movie, a lot of movies like this would actually have a, a, uh, like a bigger roster of supporting performances for all the different roles. And it was, it like, I personally thought that um, like uh, Charles Parnell as the lawyer was good. I, I didn't love Tilda Swinton as the expert that he uh, encounters at the end. I kind of found that whole scene a little bit lackluster. And I felt like I would have appreciated maybe there were most movies like this would maybe have one or two more like recognizable character actors in a few more performances. But maybe maybe there's some reason for that. I don't know. What do you think? I, I thought Tilda Swinton was good in the role. I thought. Do you believe her as like. As, as an like eight, an as in like retired and like right, she's she's like out of the game. Like, she's I, older, right? I, like, I guess my thing is like I believe her is like so. Tilda Swinton is she's good very much like, but itself. she's kind of like a fastbender kind of actor in some ways. Yes, like she can play can convey intensity and a kind of haughtiness uh, because her her sort of arty like intellectualism like always sort of bleeds through into whatever character she she's playing right and so i thought it worked like she's a little bit like him she probably thought she was going to get out unscathed in the end of yeah. everything as well right and i just i don't know i didn't i like so i thought she was good within the scene itself at the restaurant right or the way she orders like you know i'm gonna have i'll have a flight of whiskeys instead of and bring, just bring me the bottle and like that stuff was good but overall like i actually didn't really believe that she's like an assassin yeah, I, just, I I couldn't buy it. I think I agree with you, Anton, in that um, I could never picture her next to the brute. Yeah, what would she do in that situation? Like, like I just couldn't. Way- no, I just couldn't. I literally could not see somebody as like aristocratic as Tilda Swinton talk to that um, Florida monster. Like it's and it's, but it's one of those things where it's like I I kind I understand why they cast her because the whole character hinges on the ability to sell the scene in the restaurant. Yeah. And you need that moment at the table and the, so you and gotta have a certain she, kind of actor. But also like I couldn't see a lot of actors delivering the whole like I like realization through the eyes of like, oh, this is the last like, oh, I'm dead. So yeah. I'm gonna have like a, the extra whiskey and I'm gonna like there, she has a realization on her face midway through in which it's she's too um, put together to be like she's going to cry in that moment. But it's like she, Tilda Swinton is so icy of a performer. Her and Fassbender, both icy performers. It, it, it's partially the fact that like the European aspect of them and blue eyes, the blonde, the the, you know, again, extremely aristocratic features and like diction and everything. But it's just there's like a there's like a shadow that like goes over her eye in that moment and it's just it's i don't think a lot of performers could do that but that being said i still i agree with you anton i don't think i could see her but now you're making me guy now you're making me want to see tilda swinton 
push herself to do uh, maybe i haven't seen enough of her i think she could. i'm trying to think when i, I know no, i would like to see her in a role where she has to interact with some sort of different figures and things like that i mean that's one of the reasons i liked her in uh apichitapon's uh memoria right yeah Is that if putting her in that milieu outside of her comfort zone in Colombia, i thought worked really well right but it, you're right so she, she works for that scene maybe not so much but i now i kind of want to see her in uh, maybe uh, that assassin role a little bit. I don't know, but I also like Arliss Howard. <laughs> I've always liked him since Lost World. As the, the client, yeah, nobody plays like sort of snooty jerks. He's Louis Meyer in Mank, right? As well, so that's why. Yeah. I no, I just love how he had the like he had the droopy the droopy toque on yeah. Yeah. the whole time. <laughs> yes. Even even when he's doing the workout at the gym, yes, <laughs> just like rested at the very think, back of his head. He's not a big star or anything, but he's an actor that I think works well. He's well, a good character actor yeah. for sure. Is he the? He's the um, in Lost World, right? Jurassic Park. Lost yeah, he's World. like the main guy who's like trying, like yeah. uh, Hammond's nephew. Take it from Hammond. Take it over. Yeah. He's the guy who gets ripped in half by the two T Rexes <laughs> at the end, where they're playing with him in the bay. Such good. Multiple people get ripped apart by T Rexes in that movie. <laughs> How is it possible? Having prepared myself for this moment for so long, I failed to believe that it would ever arrive. How are we? We're done. Bef before we wrap things up, I want to bring up the fight. The it's awesome. The brawl. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. And I, like, so after, that for me is one of the highlights of the movie, and it was one of these like on-screen brawls, fights that reminded me. I was thinking of the intensity of the the train car fight in From Russia with Love, where it's just like it has such an intensity, partly due to the contrast to like what's going on in the movie around it. Again, like, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the movie, but it's just like, this isn't a movie of like big action scenes. There's no like, there's not, there's like one sort of car chase a little bit, but like, you know, like this, it's not an action heavy movie. And then you have this intense, intense fight, people hurling everything around them, using martial arts, like, and it's just, it's vicious and it's brutal. And I, and, and the setting it up is like a very clear, um, discrepancy in their weight classes between mm -hmm. this just monster guy and the killer who we've seen like earlier just like doing yoga and stuff very leath like we believe he's deadly but he's just there's other guys like punching through there's a limit to what you can do in a situation like that especially if the guy the i forget what they call him in the movie but uh, he's called the brute yeah in the, the credits he's the brute is uh like uh, you know a trained fighter too right it's clear yeah. this is he's, not just, he's just pumping weights and he's also pumped up on like creatine and yeah. like other but he's also got a bum leg from yeah oh for because he yeah because he was he's down gonna, on the job but yeah. the um so, got... so the i think it's a very like realistic fight in some ways like movie fights too often go too quick right one punch knocks him and i'm like and it's kind of almost like the killer thought he was going to pull that off and then it's like, no, like people don't go down that easy, especially when they're like guys like that. Like this is going to be more difficult than that. There's, there's two moments in that. Well, one is a specific moment in the fight and one is just a stylistic thing. But like there's, I, I forget who wrote this in their review and I wish I could get credit, but um, it's a con I, actually, it might've been Adam Naiman for The Ringer. He wrote a piece because obviously he has his book Mind Games on on David Fincher, so he's kind of well, an expert. If you find it, just throw it in the show notes. Yeah, and it's um, there's a shot where like the brute smashes Fazbender into the television set, and it like holds on the static of the television well, when, for how like, an LED screen would look when it's all shattered, like that. yeah, for like a brief moment, and it's just so like it's weird. Noticeable. Yeah, it's like a weird, cool, like eerie shot. Because usually but, people get smashed into TVs in movies, the TV's off and it's just glass, right? Like, exactly. The guy but, or it's old school where you shoot and there's a different kind of static with the tube television. Yeah, you yeah. get the electric kind of zap. But the other is just, so Fincher's the director, right? Who's all about control, precision, still 
camera work in that he like he's the king of he will stabilize warp stabilize to like the nth degree in editing to make sure that there's not even like a breath of like a movement on the camera this movie has like more handheld camera than i've ever seen him use and he knows when to use it to puncture the like stillness of all the other scenes so like during this fight there's a ton of handheld and it's really effective because it comes in such contrast to the kind of stillness of the rest of the movie, which is why I think, as you said with your From Russia With Love comment, Anton, like why this fight might register so well is that like it's not only like super brutal and quite prolonged. And the other thing is that um, because we watch Fazbender break into the house, we understand the geography of it so that yeah. when he's fighting them, he fights his way back through the geography. So we now know the space and what's available to use in the fight. It's a classic thing that the um, inability of certain directors nowadays to do proper blocking has essentially yeah. eliminated that from the cinematic vocabulary. So, so when you see somebody coverage. actually use that, yeah, exactly. They shoot too much coverage. They don't storyboard. Russo. <laughs> um, well, no, the Russos, the Russos would do, so the Russos like choreography, um, but you get something like gray man, the gray man's really violent in certain scenes and has like, okay. Action scenes. Like I think people who are like, it's terrible action scenes. I'm like, no, it doesn't have terrible action scenes. It's completely functional. The issue is that it's like, there's no imagination to it. There's no actual block. Like it's, it's like, okay, these are really skilled stunt performers doing something. I never saw it. Well, millions of uh, dads across America, Anders, have, <laughs> have watched it. So <laughs> no, but it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's not just the Russos, but like a lot of people like, you know, you, it's on TV shows and stuff too, where you're like, it's okay. This is clearly really well choreographed in that these people clearly like John Wick and they're like, we want to do a John Wick style fight, but they don't have the environmental or yeah. um, like situation or the imagination of like varying up. So it's like, Oh, this is a two minute fight of guys fighting each other really intensely, but there's no variation in the actual fight. Yeah. It's just like punch, punch, four, throw, punch, 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 kick, punch. Like in this, he's like throwing them across tables and he gets a gun and he's shooting through the door and then he's hiding in the bathroom and then you're like, you don't know where they are. And he comes out and the pit bull shows up. So there's all these different modes to the actual fight, yeah. which keeps the pace and the momentum going because it doesn't go stagnant despite being long. Um, and I can't really think of many other, like aside from Fight Club, how many like Fincher action scenes are there in movies? Like he doesn't really do action much. No. Like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has like the chase at the end in the car. But again, it's not really an action scene. Like it's it's no, interesting. I agree. It's, mm -hmm. He's he's clearly it, it seemed like a scene that was um well thought out from each of the little moments where where as you say it, like it uh it goes through different uh scales and the in the weapons are like between like, oh, it's gonna work, it's not. Like when he pulls out the the grater, he thinks he has a knife in the drawer. Pulls out the little grater and just like has nothing. So yeah, no, I, I thought that was, for me, that was one of the standout scenes in the movie. Is there anything else in the movie that like stood out to you? Or were there any parts that you didn't, like the one thing I'll end off with is just saying that like, I don't entirely know what to make of the girlfriend aspect. I guess I'm, I I don't entirely think of her as perfunctory. Um, like you guys seem to have suggested there seems to be a, like he seems to actually care about her because we don't see her as like this sort of like eye candy type thing. True. But that's because I think the film doesn't go to any lengths to like, by the way, it in, the way it introduces her, it doesn't um, objectify her at all in any, yeah. any moment. The issue here, the, the reason why I don't really view her as a character. Well, I guess it's objectifying. But she has way. a moment of connection with him where she's like talking. What I found interesting was she has a moment where she talks about like, basically like, she's like, I could withstand their like beating her up in like withheld because I, I learned what you taught me. And I, it just seems like there, I don't know what to make of that. Like it seems I have like to think she, about that further. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I maybe I'm being too like reductive, but I just think the fact that she's the fact that it's the Dominican, the fact that she's not white and he is, the fact that she is literally like the trophy girlfriend in the mansion. There's yeah. something like again transactional that happening there in that you can tell that like she's poor and this is a chance to be rich and like. I just yeah, I'm there's not a judgment the on the character. Yeah, it's no, of course, yeah. an, uh, an observation about more the way he interacts exactly. with yes. human beings. Yes, this is one of those. So I don't want to go along on this or anything, but like 
there's a classic thing when you're constructing specifically stories kind of like this that are centered around one character and they always do it when they're doing like kind of a world story thing is that you essentially draw a circle around the main character and you just draw lines out to all the other characters and define how those characters are just actually revealing an aspect of the main character. They're not really yes. characters. And that's kind of how I feel this movie is, is that every character is just revealing something about yes. and yet, the killer and they're not really that, characters. Yeah, but this is something that does happen in an awful lot of movies. It's something I happens in a lot of TV shows. I'm like, there's no, I've probably mentioned it before on the podcast or somewhere like that. There is a, these characters have no life off of the screen. They don't exist as people other than what they need to do to tell you for this movie. And that's not the feeling that I always get from other movies. Whereas I agree that narratively nothing, we don't learn anything about anyone that doesn't connect to the killer because that's the, the folks of the film. But I nonetheless believe that these people may have had, I, I mean, most of them have some other life like that. Exists. Even, even the even way his, like the lawyer, even the way his life in the, in the Dominican is built up. Like I wouldn't wasn't necessarily expecting that he'd have that sort of a home and that, yeah. It's amazing how physically exhausting it can be to do nothing. If you are unable to endure boredom, this work is not for you. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell.